So we are in part nine, and I entitled uh, today's message, Worthy is the Lamb. On your sheet, I think it says, Worth is the Lamb. Um, and that's, you know what? During the recession, we decided to cut wherever we could. And uh, what's the why all about? So let's just go ahead and run with Worth is the Lamb. We're trying to be as frugal as possible, so good stewards. All right, now, um, you've heard uh, Jeremy talk a little bit as he shared and led us through communion about how Christ is um, the Lamb, and we're going to be studying that all day. But I want to give you the fill in the blank on your sheet in front of you, lest lest we miss the very important element of why this chapter is in the Bible. And here you go. God has provided... God has provided the ultimate sacrificial lamb. God has provided the ultimate sacrificial lamb. That is speaking of two things that are dramatic for us. The first one is that God did what we couldn't do, right? He's provided for us a free gift to transform our lives. God has done it. And then Jesus Christ willingly laid his life down. He is the ultimate sacrifice, and it was brought all together by the Lord to you that you might live. Those two things we cannot allow to slip out of our theology, slip out of our lives. At all times, we must always be tracking and locked in with what God has done for us so that our lives are full of praise. Amen? Amen. Now then, let's, let's dive into this. Um, if you could turn with me to Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, page 869. It's the last book in the Bible. That should be easy to find. And I want to begin with a little bit of a story. Um, When we get to passages about biblical worship and praise, we start getting really Christian-y. We start making stuff like worship and praise church words and, oh, I want to be able to worship like that or say the right things or have the right hymn words or whatever it is. I want to bring it back down to be a bit more practical. Uh, When my mom, uh, three years ago, hit a milestone age, which under penalty of death I'm not allowed to reveal, when she hit a milestone in her life, um, I had heard about many years earlier uh, a way to honor my mom, and, and so I carried it out, and I wrote her a tribute booklet. And what it was, was I wrote it, there was three different sections. There was a section of stuff my mom's given me, Second one was life lessons that my mom has taught me. And the third one was just memories that make me laugh. So I set it up and in the intro I said, I'm going to write this book and it's a lot about me. Because if it was really about my mom, she wouldn't read it. She has no interest in herself. She wants to read about her kids. So I wrote this booklet out and put in a bunch of pictures of us as little kids. So she could always have this memory. Well, this year, my dad turned the same age. So I did the same thing for him. So when you know I was gone and I told you about going away fishing with my dad, that was what it was all about, is I got a chance to surprise him and bring him a booklet. Well, in those stories, that is praise. We do it all the time. You're talking about things of going, wow, I love you because you're amazing because we do that with our friends. We do that with people that we see on TV. Whenever you alter your life, That is an element of worship. Because worship worship means something is worth it. Someone is worth it to alter what you're doing. 
When you come to church, it is an act of worship because you've altered your schedule to come be a part of learning about the Lord. When you sing a song of praise, it's an act of worship because you could be doing something else, but you have changed your day so that you might sing for the Lord. When you make good decisions in your life to say, I'm going to follow the Lord and be obedient as opposed to doing my own thing, that is an act of worship. Praise is where you're constantly telling someone you are so wonderful because of who you are. You're wonderful because of what you've done. But we do this stuff all the time. It's not fancy. It's not creepy. It's not biblically only. It is very practical, very normal, something that should just flow out of your life. Even just having a heart of gratitude and thankfulness is praise and worship to God. So we're going to learn all about that today. So let's dive into this. I'm just going to read the chapter with you then we'll pray for the word and then we'll see what the Bible has to say to us. So we're in Revelation chapter five. I should get there. Revelation chapter five. Let me read through it. Here we go. John says this, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now that's a worship service. Yeah, that's pretty intense. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father. We want to thank you and praise you now. We want to alter our life. We want to praise you with the words that we say, with the thoughts in our heads, with the actions of our lives. And we just ask today, Lord, that we would get it. 
that we would see you a little more clearly, that we'd begin to worship you a little bit more rightly, that we would become alive inside. That, Father, that your your word here before us would show up like a giant movie screen, that it would be painted right before us, that we would engage with who you are. May we lift you as large as you are, and of course, no matter how great we try to make you be, you're so much more than that. Be praised today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now then, let's dive into this. Part of the gift of a preacher is to make a whole lot out of nothing, right? So I'm about to dive into this whole thing that we begin with and go off on it for a little while. I know that for some of you, you know, are not too interested in the details, but I am and I have the microphone. So there. It said, uh, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll. Why is it in his right hand? Because left-handed people aren't worth it. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's not at all what it means. Okay. Now I have to be honest with you. Both my parents are left-handed. All us kids are right-handed. So I don't know what's going on. But anyway, why is it in the right hand? The right hand is the hand of authority or power. For example, if there's a throne, whoever is sitting at the right hand, that is the next in line in terms of power. So for whatever reason, however they came up with it, whether it was because they were, there was predominantly right-handed folks and that was what they would draw the bow with or fight with, I have no idea where it came from. All I know is that's what it stands for. So in the right hand, the hand of authority and power of the one sitting on the throne, which we know to be either God triune or just simply the father, is a scroll. Now, the scroll in Greek, the word is biblion. What does that sound like? The Bible. That's where we get the word the Bible from. Now, our Bible is a book. This one can be a book or a scroll. It actually goes either way. Now, the way that this is described seems to indicate that it's a scroll. And as a matter of fact, papyrus scrolls were very, very common. They were used for all sorts of legal contracts back then. And indeed, that's what this most likely was. Now, you can read it, and there's a specific word in there that you can translate either the scroll was in his hand or it was on his hand. A book you would put on your hand, a scroll you'd put in your hand. So you can sit there and play with the words a little bit. But the bottom line is, it appears that he has a scroll in his hand. Now, scrolls were made of papyrus. Papyrus is, as we've talked about before, ripped out of a reed that is by the Nile River. They almost grow to about 15 feet tall. They're big, meaty reeds to where you tear them apart, you lay them out flat, you hammer them down, you put on one side uh, vertical on the other side horizontal so it's almost like a cross stitch to keep it strong you beat it down you dry it out and then it becomes your writing paper now it's easier to write on one side than it is on the other side because one side is horizontal one side is vertical you don't want to write across the um, grain you want to write with the grain so you now have these papyrus scrolls and what would happen is you hold it in your left hand because it was wrapped around two wooden rollers you scroll it out by looking at it, and as you're reading, you roll up one side and roll down the other side, so it's always the same width. Now, these legal contracts, the stuff that I kind of tracked down, were deeds to land, marital contracts, rent lease agreements, and wills. Those were the primary things that were on scrolls. So the minute a scroll is seen in the Bible, automatically all the readers would go, oh, it's one of those. 
There's some contract on that. Even though we don't know what's inside it yet, we know that God is holding something in his right hand that's of high value. But this scroll is a little unusual for two reasons. What does it say? The first one is there's writing on both sides. That's not common. That's not normal. Remember, it's easier to write on one side. You write on the horizontal side. You don't write on the vertical side. That makes it more difficult. There's only very few reasons why you would write on both sides. And the other unusual thing about it is that it's sealed not with one seal like most, but with how many? Seven seals. So now we have an unusual document in the hand of God. So let's start playing with this a little bit. First of all, why is it written on both sides? I got three choices for you. You ready? This is what they could be. First one, there's a ton on it. God had a lot to say, right? Because the only reason that you would ever write on the other side is if you ran out of room. You would write on the first one. And back then, papyrus was very expensive. Writing uh, uh, products were very expensive. You couldn't get them. So only if you ran out of room would you start writing on the hard side. So it may be merely a symbol that God had a lot to say, that, that whatever was on this document was a pretty big deal, right? That's the first one. Second one is this. Some documents would have the details on the front rolled up. On the back was a summary. So in case you went, I don't want to read through the whole thing again. You turn the scroll over, you open it up, you see the summary. Is that what it means? Or the third one, does it mean nothing could be added? God goes, I used up all the room. There's nothing you can add to it. Sorry. I've used every square inch of this scroll. It's my will and no one will add to it. Is that what it means? Well, I don't know. Do you see how these things begin to come in? When you examine the ancient world, you get all these options of what it could possibly mean. But what does it say? We are never actually told what it says. As long as you're going to read the rest of Revelation, you're going to get a gist of what you think it might say. But it never says, and he opened the scroll and read, it will never tell you. So now we have to go back and say, well, what is it then? Well, five options for you. Ready? First one. Is it the title deed of the earth? Why would we think that it's a title deed? Well, deeds were commonly written on scrolls and everyone would automatically go, okay, it's a contract. It's a title deed. This is everything about the earth. He's now handing it over because the lamb is worthy, right? So he's going to hand it over is the second one. Second choice. Is it God's will? His will and testament. And you go, why would we guess that? Because the only document in the Roman world that was sealed with seven seals was a will. So if the Romans would have ever read this story, they would immediately went, oh, it's a will. That's the only document you seal like that. Is it God's will? If it's a will, the only one worthy to break the seals is the heir that will receive the inheritance that is inside that scroll. Third option is it merely the judgments that we're about to read? Because right after this chapter, you guys, it all hits the fan. Everything explodes. God's wrath is flying. There's all kinds of stuff destroyed. I mean, it just begins to get insane. Is this merely a recording of all that is about to occur in the following judgments? Perhaps. Number four, is it the prophecy, destiny, and history of the whole world that the Father is putting to the Son? Perhaps. Fifth, kind of a catch-all, is it representative of something we don't even know? Is it the Lamb's Book of Life, the Old Testament, whatever, right? 
Okay, so now we have this scroll. Why seven seals? Remember, seven seals on a Roman will. Maybe it means profound secrecy. Well, this is super sealed, right? Nobody can ever find out about it. Or maybe it merely means that it's unable to be altered. Once God locks it down, he locks it down with seven. Seven is the number of perfection. Therefore, it's completely sealed, unable to be changed. All right. So that is a whole bunch of useless information about scrolls. There you go. Right. But as you're looking at this, do you understand it begins to broaden your mindset as to what is occurring here? There's something big about to happen, and it has to do with what's in the hand of God. All right. So we go back to it. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Last note on that. There are two other documents in the Bible that are written on both sides. The first one is a scroll given to Ezekiel, the prophet of lamentations that was written on both sides and something that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Do you remember the stone tablets? They were written on both sides. That's supposed to be drawn into your mind. Here we go. And I saw a mighty angel. How do you know it's a mighty angel? Aren't all angels pretty mighty? Right? How in the world did he know that? Was it like super buff angel? Is that what it was? It's like, and then I saw really cool angels, and then there was one enormous dude. Okay, I don't know what it means. But somehow he knew he was mighty. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in what? A loud voice. That's my man right? Anybody that yells is my friend, okay? Because I apparently have two volumes, quiet and super loud. So I'm yelling all the time. Well, why is he yelling? Because what he's about to proclaim needs to go out to the uttermost elements of creation. He needs to shout symbolically so that goes to all of the universe, all of creation. Everyone's supposed to know what he is about to say. All right. What does he say? It's a big question. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Remember, we got these seven seals on there. So where are they? Are they on the end of the scroll like normal? In that history, they would seal it on the end so you'd have to break all the seals before you open the beginning. Or is it that he would write a little bit, roll up a little bit, seal it? Write a little bit, roll it up, seal it so that you could break them as you're opening it. One is more historically accurate. One seems to fit the context because now all of a sudden when he opens them, you'll see him break a scroll, break one of the seals and stuff hits. Then there's a pause. He breaks another seal. More stuff happens. And it seems like he's unraveling the scroll. Who is worthy? Who could dare touch this scroll? Who could dare to break the seals of God? Who has that authority? Who has that power? Who has that right? And so he shouts into all creation waiting for someone to arrive. Well, what happens? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Nobody can cut it. No one is worthy. That's a sad state of creation. Well, either that or it's a great state of who God is, right? No one. So what did John do? Next sentence. I wept and wept. It's interesting. Things that break God's heart don't really break our heart. Okay. I cry at Marley and me. Anybody ever seen that movie? What a horrible movie. I hate that movie. All right. 
Okay, I, I, don't, I don't care if you think it's cute. The dog dies for 45 minutes, okay? That's, come on, I'm a dog lover. I can't watch that stupid thing. I'm bawling like a baby, right? The stuff that I cry about is probably not the same stuff that God cries about. But all of a sudden, John is caught up into this amazing environment where all of a sudden all the petty stuff is gone. Now the, only the stuff that matters is left. John is caught up. He can't wait to see what's in this scroll because in that scroll is where God makes everything right. And now all of a sudden that's gotten frustrated. Now all of a sudden there needs to be a pause. Now all of a sudden no one can cut it. No one can open it up. Now John's freaking out. And his whole thing is, God... The earth needs you. And he begins to weep and weep in sadness because he wants so badly for salvation to come. So I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Who's this guy? Well, we talked about who the elders could be, right? Well, in history, everybody guesses it's Peter or it's Matthew, right? I think it'd be really cool if it was John. Remember? Because if it's the 12 apostles and there's some of the 24, one of them's him. And it could be like future John talking to past John, right? You know, and he's like, fear not. You know, I am John, right? Okay, anyway, that's kind of sci-fi. All right. But anyway, he says, do not weep. Now, he's not saying it to say, suck it up, take it like a man, quit being a baby. That's not what he's saying. He says, do not weep because there's an answer. There's no reason to cry when the answer is right here. See, he says, and he turns to point. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah. What in the world does that mean? Well, in Genesis, there was a guy. Remember, it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's how the patriarchs go. So it goes Abraham, father of all the Jewish people. Isaac, his son. He had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. That's where we get the name from. And Israel had how many sons? Twelve. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel, even though there was a little bit of movement about whose territory is whose. Well, one of those sons was named Judah. And when the dad was prophesying over the kids, he was talking about what they were going to be like, what kind of nation they were going to be. He says to Judah, you're going to be a lion's cub. And he predicted right there that the line of kings would come through the Judah line. Ultimately, that's where David was going to come in. Ultimately, that's where the Messiah was going to show up. And they would reign until the promised one, the Messiah, would ultimately take the throne. And that's what we're referring to here. So now we have a line of kings and we've just met the king of kings. The lion, the noblest, most mighty beast the lion of the tribe of Judah. But he's not just that. That's not just the only messianic title they're given to Jesus. He says what? The root of David. In Isaiah chapter 11, there was this prophecy that the Messiah would come through David's line and it said it will be an offshoot or a branch of Jesse. Who the heck is Jesse? Jesse is David's dad. So, the Messiah is going to come out of David's line. But this doesn't say he's a branch. It says he's the what? The root. It's now flipped over. And he said, not only is the Messiah in David's line, but the Messiah was before all time. He's the very essence, the source, the beginning of anything David ever was. 
He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What has he done? He has triumphed. That's past tense with future implications. That means he's already triumphed. It is finished. It is done. He is magnificent and majestic as king. And we need to read that line a lot more in our lives. We need to go through and go, wait a second. What happened to the world? Jesus has triumphed. He's in. He's good. He has triumphed and he is able. You see that? He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But I need you to understand, we make our problems bigger than God. No, he's able, right? We need to realize, we got to use that phrase in our lives a lot more. He is able. He is able to overcome whatever is facing you. He is able to dominate any enemy that stands against his children. He is able to control all history. He is able to control all the future. For our God is able, amen? That's the thing. He is able. So then what happens? Right? Says this. The elder goes, hey, look, the lion's here. He turns around and he sees a lamb. Ooh, bait and switch. Right? It's kind of like, oh, you're ready for a lion. Ah, I gave you a lamb. Ah, trick's on you. What in the world is this all about? Then I saw a lamb. Why in the world do you say that the lion is triumphant and you turn around and see a lamb? That's the power of pictures. The power of illustration. If you describe it, it kind of ruins it. The point of the passage is to hit you full force and go, I was waiting for a lion. What in the world is this lamb doing here? You're supposed to be shocked to go, I don't get it. How's a lion a lamb? But do you understand how marvelous this picture is? Why? The way that Jesus became victorious was to what? Die. To be sacrificed. You now have his mightiest act done in absolute humility and self-sacrifice. Now you see the two comings of Christ. First time he came as a lamb. Second time he's coming as a lion. You begin to see the two sides of Jesus spin. It was such a big deal to the Jews that when they looked in the Old Testament, they said, well, I see at least two messiahs. I see the suffering servant that's supposed to die for the sins of the world, and I see a mighty victor. I'm not quite sure how those two are going to work together. Those obviously must be two different guys. They had no idea that it was going to be the same guy that would start out by dying for the sins of the world and return as a mighty victor. That was not in their idea at all. But here you have this amazing picture. Look, it's a lion. You turn around, it's a lamb. How amazing is that? Then I saw a lamb. You guys, a lamb is a big deal in the Bible. Lambs are talked about all the time, but this word for lamb is different. There's two words for lamb. Actually, there's a couple different words for lamb, but the two that are most used in the New Testament, this is only in Revelation is this word used. It's usually amnos. This is arnion. You go, why does that matter? It's only a subtle change, but I think it means something. Amnos is the normal name for sheep. Arneon means little pet lamb. The little cute guy. That's what it means. And you're like, I don't get it. I don't understand why. Well, that was, you have to understand, back then in this agricultural society, pets were also lambs. Sometimes that would just be that they'd name him and hang out and the kids would play with him. Oh, look, he's all wooly, right? And you'd lay with him, let him sleep in your house, stuff like that. 
That's this word. All of a sudden the word just drastically changes. And it is used in Revelation 29 times to describe Jesus. It's a big deal. What's the lamb all about? Why are we talking about a lamb? You can go, well, it's obviously because all apocalyptic tradition, that's normally they would use lamb as victors and blah, 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 intertestamental period. Okay, maybe. But maybe there's something biblical there. There's three major stories about lambs in the Bible. The first one is the story of Abraham called to sacrifice his son Isaac. You remember that story? So remember, I went through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham was told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. Remember that incredibly weird story? I want you to kill your kid. So they go out, hey, let's go camping, Isaac, this will be awesome. As they're walking out and he's got the wood on his back, he's carrying the wood, kind of like Jesus was carrying the cross. There's all these tie-ins. Wow. All of a sudden he's walking up and he asks a question. Genesis chapter 22, he asks the question of his dad. Hey, dad, I know we're going to do a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Right? And his dad's like, oh, I don't know, God. <laughs> you know, God will provide. And every, the whole time he's got a knife in his back pocket and he's waiting to kill his kid, right? So Isaac has no idea what's going on. Then all of a sudden he starts tying his kid. The kid's like, what's going on, right? All this whole thing. And then all of a sudden God says, stop. I have provided. And all of a sudden a ram is caught in the thicket. Do you remember that? And they sacrifice the ram. That is where we heard that word Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. So this great question in the Old Testament was, where is the lamb? That's a pretty big question for the Jews, for all people all over the world. Who's going to take away our sin? Who's going to be the ultimate sacrifice? Do you guys remember when Jesus is walking down the street one direction, John the Baptist is walking down the street the other direction, and he's walking with some of his disciples. One of them happens to be Andrew, Peter's brother. They're walking down the street. John stops, stops this guy. He says, guys, hold on a second. You see that guy right there? Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He answered the age-old question, where's the lamb? He's right there. He's walking down the street. And the disciples left John the Baptist to go follow Jesus. That's one major element. The lamb of the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? Right here. Right? Or it could be the reference to the Isaiah passage, like a lamb was led to the slaughter before shearers is silent, and this whole thing about how Christ was going to die for our sacrifice, right? Or it could be the Passover. Y'all remember the Passover story, right? Jeremy just, just talked a little bit about that. What's the point? Once you had the lamb, you brought it into your house. Now check this out. Why the word for little baby pet lamb? I learned this in a, in a commentary recently. When you do Passover, you had to select a pure, spotless, unblemished lamb, right? A little baby one. And you had to keep him in your house for four days before you slaughtered him. You guys, what happens if your kids have a little lamby in the house for four days? Come on. Is it not immediately named? Is it not immediately, ah, I'm taking the lamb for a walk, right? And it's all this stuff. Now, all of a sudden, everyone gets attached to this little guy. Then he's slaughtered. There's all this. No, don't let, don't kill him, Dad. I can't believe you're going to kill him. You can't kill him. And he's got a name. Right? What's that supposed to be doing? But creating this word picture that that was the exact same thing that Jesus' mom was crying out as he's walking on the road to die. Please don't kill him. He has a name. That's my son. It was supposed to turn him inside out to know 
that an innocent party would die. And it's so fascinating that you have a lion who's a predator and you have a lamb who has no means of defense. Without horns, you got nothing, right? I'll fight you with my little hooves. There's nothing to fight with, right? I can't ram you with my wool. That's not going to work. You've got this innocent, unprotected party who is going to be sacrificed for something they didn't do. This is all this amazing picture of who Jesus is. Why is he a lamb? Do you need any more reasons? It's all intertwined. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been what? Slain. How freaky of a picture is that? It means throat slashed. Here is Jesus. The throat is ripped open and blood is pouring out. And he's just looking at John. This whole idea of I've been torn open for you. And you go, why all the blood? Because it's all about the blood. Why has he got to still have the marks? Why can't he be sewn up? Why can't we just have some type of plastic surgery on the sheep? Why can't we have everything look nice? Because it wasn't nice. And if you remember, whenever Jesus showed up, even as the risen Lord, there's people like Thomas that still want to see the marks. Oh, I'm not going to believe it was really bad. I'm not really going to believe it's Jesus until you show me how his hands were gashed and his side was gashed. And I got to put my hands there. And Jesus walks up and he goes, what do you need? Really? Come here for a second. Put your hands right there. Feel that? Yeah, that hurt. How about my side? You want to feel that too? Now do you believe? I died for you. I'm not changing my sign because I want you to see what it cost. There throat slashed open is the lamb that's jesus then i saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne reigning with the father encircled by the four living creatures and the elders remember we talked about them last week he had seven horns and seven eyes that is a freaky looking lamb He's got the throat open, the seven eyes, the seven horns. What's that all about? Number of perfection, horns stand for power, eyes stand for wisdom. All power, all wisdom. Got it? So when you read and there's figures and animals in the Bible and you see things, they stand for something. It's not just, oh my gosh, they have a really hard time seeing. So they need seven eyes all the way around, right? So they can play tag and not get caught. It's not that. It's very specific. It's very symbolic. Those seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's a Zechariah reference. It says the lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. You guys know what falling down means? Do you know anything about that? Have you ever seen that in a worship service? When we fall down, we go halfway, right? When we fall down, we do the kneel thing, right? The, the, we'll, we'll do this, and this is a powerful stance. I'm on my knees. I've got my hands raised, right? That's not prostrate. That's not falling down. I've only seen this ever happen, really. The only pictures I've ever seen, even though I've been in worship services where people have done this, the only official people that I know that still do it are the cardinals that fall down at the throne with the pope. It's the only time I've ever seen that. It's a sad state when they're the only guys doing it. 
But literally, it's falling down and it's laying down face down with your forehead to the ground, arms outstanding or standing straight out towards the throne. It's a complete act of submission. It is this whole idea that I am nothing and I have fallen down before you and I am at your absolute mercy because really you can't get up fast. If you're on your knees, that's pretty tough to get up real fast, but you can immediately go into a defensive mode. When you're laying down on your stomach, you got nothing, right? So sometimes when it's really dark in here and we do a a prayer time or whatever, like when we dedicated this building, my goal is to walk up and go right here at the front, move those chairs out because I'm long. And I just stretch out and lay face down right there to pray. Why? Because it's trying to get through my head the reality that only God is worthy. And I got nothing to bring. Right? That's what they do. The minute they saw him take the scroll that he is worthy to change, to consummate all of history, to do the will of God, bam, they hit the deck. Just like that. Each one meaning the elders, had a harp. That's where you get the harp thing. Where everyone talks about the whole ding, that kind of thing. Okay, it's not the big old enormous harp. It's not like they're trying to carry this huge thing. The harp back then was what Psalms, that's the kind of instrument of the Psalms that David used to play. And it was also the instrument of prophecy. But it was more handheld, more like a guitar, than it was anything like the huge harp. Each one of them had a harp. Why? To make music. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense. In the temple and in the tabernacle, they would have wide-mouthed saucers that were half between a saucer and a cup, and it held incense that would burn. And it was metal so that you could put all the hot ashes in there and not burn yourself. And then they would have those burn before the Lord. Golden bowls full of incense. And it says right here, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. All this stuff in Revelation, it's new this, new name, new city, new this, right? A new song. How do you sing a new song for the Lord? As a matter of fact, Psalm says, bring a new song every morning to the Lord, right? What is a new song? It means you just got new information and there's something new to talk about. That's all it means. Don't make it anything more than it is. They're singing a new song because they just learned new information. What's the new information? Hey, the lamb is worthy. Guess what? That sparks a song. That sparks something I can talk about. Hey, Lord, you're amazing. You're worthy to open the scroll. They didn't know that before. So a new song is not something deep. It's just new material. So every morning we're supposed to wake up knowing that God did something yesterday that was amazing that we can talk about. Today, if you don't have a new song in your heart, that means God didn't do anything lately, right? Oh, God hasn't done anything for me, so I got nothing to sing about. Ooh, I'm not so sure. Maybe we're not looking. We should always have a new song in our heart. And they sang a new song. What was their new song? You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased, that is the ransom concept, you purchased men For God, from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them, your people, your children, to be kingdom and priests, to serve our God. That was the great promise to the Jews. And they will reign on the earth. I had 15 of you get back to me on that whole reigning, who's reigning who. And I put it all together in one huge email. Wrote down all the stuff you guys had come up with. Gave it back to you. It was brilliant. 
It was brilliant. One of the people that contributed was a 14-year-old gal. I met her last night. Just brilliant. Came up with all these amazing ideas. If you're interested in that stuff, just email me. I'll fire you the combo email. I'll let you know what they came up with. Just fascinating. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That is not a number. You go, yeah, it is. It's 10,000. No, it's not. It's a Hebrew idiom that means uncountable, innumerable. It's not a literal number. Angels are never numbered in the sense of how many there are. They're innumerable. They encircled the throne, the living creatures and elders, in a loud voice, they sang. Okay, I got a challenge for you today. You ready? I gave you a challenge last time. Got a new challenge for you. As I was prepping this lesson, I got to the end of it, and at the end of it, I read three commentaries in a row that said, in the Bible, angels never sing. And I went, what? No, 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 no. Hark the hair. No, they sing. <laughs> of course they sing. What, are you going to mess up all my Christmas songs? What are you talking about? They speak. They shout. They proclaim. And what's weird is I started going back and trying to track down the word in Greek and it kept saying speak. And I was like, oh no, this is ruining everything, right? So is he full of baloney? Well, I don't know. You guys have to go figure it out, right? That's your challenge, right? Do angels sing? Where does it say? Even though right here it says they sing, a lot of times it means, and then the elders and the living creatures sang, but they shouted in proclamation. Do they sing? Can you find anywhere that they sing? In the original language. Let's move forward. It says, they encircled the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. How many out there? Seven. What's the number of perfection? Seven. These are all symbolic. They're shouting out and said, I could go on forever, but I cited seven. You are worthy of all praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning the dead, and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne. That is the Father. And to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, meaning so be it. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow, what if we could worship like that? You know what I mean? I mean, this is such a powerful passage of who Jesus is. And when we begin to see that and see that he is worthy and see that he is able, these new songs rise up in our hearts. And sometimes when we're caught up in just having an image of Jesus, maybe someday we will feel the need to fall down, face down before God, before Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior and King. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us to take a look at your throne room, to enter in to these mysteries, to be able to see how great and mighty you are, Jesus. That we want you to know you are the king of us. We want you to know that you are the king of Bridgeway, the king of our families, and that we want it to be here on earth as it is in heaven. In our worship times, our times of song, in our worship times, our times of work, our worship times are times of learning, teaching, being, acting, living. We want you to be magnified. May you be glorified. And Father, may you be praised in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.